Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Francois Nader, the former CEO of NPS Pharma and current board director at several biotech and pharma companies, including Moderna. In terms of background, um, I've been in the uh, biotech pharma industry for over 30 years. I am an MD, MBA uh, by training. Uh, worked uh, the first part of my career in the vaccine business. Uh, very pertinent nowadays. I was the ended up being the head of uh, the global division for the Pasteur vaccine business uh, back in the day. Then uh, we moved from uh, there, from France to Canada, where I was in charge of uh, an R&D organization. And then I've been in this country for the last 25 years, actually 28 years now. And um, in different roles, um, uh, the last one uh, in big pharma at least, was uh, I was the head of uh, medical and regulatory in North America for Aventis and then switched to a managed care, head of managed care role. And then uh, a couple of years in the venture capital world, and then I had the, uh, the opportunity, frankly, lifelong opportunity of uh, leading NPS through a major turnaround uh, that uh, ended in NPS filing and having two drugs approved in the rare disease space and were acquired by Shire back in 2005. And since then, I mainly do uh, board work. Uh, I'm currently the chairman of uh, three biotech companies. Uh, two public uh, and one private, uh, public Acceleron um, and uh, Prevail. Uh, both are public, one in Boston, one in New York. I'm also the chairman of Talaris in the cell therapy space. And um, I, uh, I serve on the board of uh, Alexion, very well-known company in the rare disease space, and also on the board of Moderna, uh, who has been in the news uh, recently. Uh, because of our work in developing a COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Um, that's, in a nutshell, my background. And through all these years, um, as everyone who is familiar with the biotech, uh, biopharma space, you go, uh, you go usually through a little bit of good days and then uh, really bad days and really crappy, crappy days uh, because we live in and die by data, we live and die by uh, the capital markets, we live and die by ability to find uh, the right talent, um, clinical trial implement, and I go down the list. So um, I cannot uh, be thankful enough for the opportunity that I had throughout my career to be in this space. And uh, it is my pleasure to share a little bit of my experience with you today. Great, thank you. Thank you, Francois. I know when we spoke uh, earlier this week about what you've been through, you spoke about NPS, uh, you know, when you first came on board, how difficult it was. Why don't you share a little more detail there, and then we'll go into sort of uh, best practices or, or tips uh, in leading in a downturn or crisis. Right, so when I joined uh, NPS, as many of you who are familiar with our space know, it was a company in distress um, that had uh, lost its primary asset, uh, which was a drug for osteoporosis. And unfortunately, the drug was not approved uh, by the FDA, and um, the, uh, the company was in serious trouble financially and 
virtually in any other aspect. So we joined and um, turned around the company uh, by uh, reducing its size, uh, focusing on rare diseases, um, frankly switching from these uh, FIPCO model to a more strategic outsourcing model. And uh, we, we raised money uh, back uh, in 2008, which was hugely uh, difficult between 2008, 2011, uh, by using, frankly, every tool, tool in the toolbox, uh, working with my team. Um, and uh, it turned out to be a very good success, very good journey. Uh, but was, what was more important, and this was my conversation with Jim a few days back, is through this journey of seven years, we had six near-death experiences. So starting the turnaround was probably the easy part. But then you go through the motion um, that, frankly, every biotech company goes through, where uh, because of data, because of circumstances, because of uh, CMC, because of manufacturing, you hit glitches that uh, could have frankly, hurt uh, the company big time. And we learned over the years uh, to manage those crises and uh, frankly, continue building the company and building its value. Great. So from those experiences, Francois, give us some tips. There are a lot of entrepreneurs on this, uh, on this Zoom chat and going, they're going through this incredibly unprecedented time where saving money, saving cash is going to be critical, but also leading teams and keeping them motivated is going to be uh, really important as well. So tell us what you've learned and what you can share with those leaders on the phone today. So, I mean, one of the key things that I learned over the years is uh, that is one thing, and frankly, only one thing, that is so difficult for leaders to build and to acquire and so easy to lose, especially in periods of crisis. And this is something called personal credibility. Over the years, I've seen leaders who were fantastic in good times completely lose their credibility in, in tough times. And this is something that once you lose it, it's gone. There is no way one could uh, get it back. Uh, and probably corollary to credibility is trust. Uh, people join companies for many different reasons, but one of the key reasons is usually the leadership. And why? Because they trust that the leader will lead them uh, to, uh, to safe shores, if you will. So when you combine these two, these are the two factors that in periods of crisis determine with no exception the good leaders from the rest of the crowd. A good leader maintains their credibility, maintains the trust that they own uh, from their employees and do everything uh, to, to keep these two exceedingly important elements together. Now, this is translated into something called leadership. How many times we've seen leaders disappear, disintegrate during crisis. And this is where uh, your, your people need you, your team needs you, your employees need you, their families actually need you, right? And what I usually say is uh, 
lead, especially when you don't have a clue where you're going as a leader. Okay, it's very easy to lead when you know where you're going. But your team actually would like to hear from you, even if you don't have a clue where you're going. Why? Because it shows, and this is another aspect that is critically important, it shows your true self, who you are as a leader. And one of the, I would say, characteristic is frankly to be honest with yourself before being honest to your team. And at times as a leader, frankly, I did not have a clue how to make it happen. And I opened up to my team and we figured it out is another characteristic of, of strong leadership in periods of crisis. Be open to what you know, but more, more, more importantly, be open to what you don't know and seek advice from people around you. I've seen, I've seen leaders isolate during periods of crisis. Uh, that, that's not the right thing, at least in my book. It is to be with your team and engage them and collectively, we will find the solution. We, the collective we, is a very, very strong and, and very powerful tool in periods of crisis. Um, I don't know everything about everything, but collectively with my team, we will figure it out. And we did figure it out. So these are the soft things that I think are critically important. And last but certainly not least, it might sound simplistic, but it's absolutely not. How many times in our uh, professional lives we've seen our leaders treat us as if we're kids or morons or both. And this is kind of the corporate spiel that uh, doesn't go anywhere. So my characteristic, my, my recommendation is you, you hired your team, you hired your employees because they're smart people. Uh, and during the period of crisis, please treat them as such. So the corporate spiel is good, doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. And this is the best way to lose credibility. Talk to them with the same spirit and the same message and the same tone that you used when you hired them. In other words, we're all in together. You're smart as a team, we'll make it happen. And communication, communication, communication is so dramatically important, but true communication, not sanitized corporate communication from the heart communication. This is the only communication that resonates with, with our teams. Great, I, I, I appreciate that communication guidance, Francois, because I know I've been telling companies I advise those entrepreneurs to over communicate, not only to employees, but to customers, to clients, to vendors, to partners, as much as possible. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Totally, because here again, I mean, our, our constituents in general, whether it's our clients, our uh, board of directors, our employees, uh, our community, are, are part of this, of this network that make us who we are. And in today's crisis, everyone is impacted, big or small, left, right, everyone is impacted. And what I've seen um, in the last few weeks are true leaders reaching out and communicating what is the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and not sugarcoating stuff. In our business, it's very clear that 
um, life is not as usual. I mean, it's anything but usual. And uh, every turn in my companies, every day, we talk about a new set of issues that frankly, we did not think about. But what I encourage the companies I'm, I'm interacting with is communicate to all your, com communicate to your uh, investigators. Uh, and don't ask them about the clinical trial. Ask them, how are you doing? How is your family doing? How are you surviving uh, being frontline in a hospital? This human touch is so dramatically important because in crisis like today, this supersedes the business aspect of things. At the end of the day, uh, your clients would not remember uh, if you talk to them about an invoice or about a project that you're working. They will definitely remember the conversation you had about their family, about if everyone is safe, about can I do anything to help you in those circumstances. Th this is what they will remember. Right, so Jim, right. I cannot agree more with you. I mean, communicate, 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 but communicate from the heart, not in a sanitized, sterile, corporate way. Right. And thank you for that, Francois. And you listed a few things there. If there is one thing, you know, for entrepreneurs and leaders, could you share with us that one takeaway, that one thing that um, everyone should remember from this conversation? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the one thing at least uh, I try to do and uh, is really be there uh, for my team, be there for my employees, be there for them uh, when they need me. Uh, this is time where uh, your your teams, your employees, your staff, they need to feel that you are there for them. And you are there for them, not because you're signing their paycheck. That's not it. Uh, you're there for them as a leader who cares. So if I have one takeaway is genuinely care about your team. And guess what? They will remember that. They will remember that during tough times, you were there as a leader, but also as a person. Not only you were there, not as your business card, but as a human being who share with them, um, again, their life in difficult times. And that's what I would suggest we all do. Great. Thank you, Francois. We have questions coming on, but before we get to the questions, can you talk a bit about the biotech sectors uh, these days? Let, let's, why don't you talk before, pre-COVID and post-COVID, uh, and, and, and so we can get sort of some perspective on how things have changed and how they are so critical now, uh, even more critical these days. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's unbelievable what about 90 days change in the life of, um, of the biotech space. It's incredible. Um, well, listen, I mean, uh, for many of our companies, um, the clinical development has um, slowed down, uh, in some cases stopped. Uh, why? Because frankly, our uh, 
our investigators, our uh, key opinion leaders are busy being frontline fighting COVID, or frankly, they're not there because they, they have now diverted their attention to other, um, to other more important priorities. But also, we don't want to put uh, patients at risk by bringing them to the hospital if they don't need to be there. So in many instances, we've seen uh, a slowdown um, and a, uh, at times, again, as I said, it, it completely stalled. On the completely opposite end of the spectrum, uh, we have activities that have accelerated. Uh, Moderna, who I have the pleasure of serving on the board of, <clears throat> as, as you probably know by now, uh, we're working on, uh, on a vaccine for COVID, and frankly, it's full steam ahead. Um, so, and other companies, Gilead and Regeneron and others, who are embarked on finding a, a, either a vaccine or a cure or a treatment uh, for COVID-19, have accelerated this path. And frankly, the, the regulators have opened uh, the doors wide open to help us uh, make sure that it happens. So this is on the operation side. The, the, the second aspect is frankly, we're not always used to work remotely and everyone is. So certain things could be done or can be done remotely, others cannot. So for example, if I look at manufacturing, CMC and anything or labs, these are the two extremes, uh, folks frankly have to be there and do the work in uh, very difficult circumstances. So I have tons of uh, respect uh, for these individuals who, uh, frankly, take a risk uh, personally uh, to, to keep the machine going. Um, from the capital markets, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a huge difference. 90 days made a gigantic difference. I'm not talking about, um, about companies losing a significant chunk of their uh, market cap, uh, their value but also uh, the flow of investment has slowed down quite dramatically. Uh, if I look back at the uh, fourth quarter of 2019, um, money, frankly, capital was not that of an issue. Uh, it was there uh, for good products, good technologies, good people. Uh, raising capital was not a big deal. It was a deal, but not a big deal. Today, it's significantly more difficult. So I have a concern for those companies who relied on the next clinical data point that is now delayed and were living on a very short runway, hoping either to go public or to do a financing, and now it's practically not that possible. So uh, this is a little bit the situation, and in, in those situations you have opportunities that are created. So uh, we might see uh, more M&A activities. We might see more uh, licensing uh, activities going on. Unfortunately, we might see companies disappear. We might see others grow. So it's a very dynamic and probably the biggest question mark that we work on with uh, everyone I'm involved with is the uncertainty of when normality will be back. <laughs> You know, and frankly, today it's anyone's guess. And this is extremely difficult because we have to plan uh, with a, a, a high degree of uncertainty. And this leads to a number of actions that most companies take. It's how could I reduce my burn? 
how could I preserve my assets? How could I preserve my people? You know, and you go down the list of things that companies are uh, trying to figure out in real time. Great. And as far as the response to COVID, I know um, our friend Bob Harari is working on uh, some new uh, treatments and therapeutics and uh, gene therapy and Peter Diamandis as well is very hopeful. With all of the energy that's going to uh, respond to this terrible virus with therapies as well as vaccines, this is unprecedented. Can you give us some insight uh, or hope that we will uh, get there fast or extraordinarily, extraordinarily faster than usual? Yeah, I don't pretend to be uh, Anthony Fauci, nor would I attempt to be uh, him. <laughs> uh, all I can say is uh, a lot of work is being done by a lot of companies. And probably the three buckets, um, just to simplify what's going on, we have really three buckets, okay? Uh, the first bucket, which is the most, uh, the, the quickest, if you will, the bucket that includes um, medications, drugs that are approved for other indications and now are being repurposed, if you will, uh, for COVID-19. Uh, this is the fastest in the sense that these drugs are approved. We, we know exactly their profile, uh, both in terms of safety, more importantly, but also in terms of efficacy. And now uh, we're trying to repurpose them uh, to see if they work against uh, this particular virus. Um, this is uh, probably the, the quickest, right? And then you have uh, two big buckets. Uh, one is vaccines, uh, and a number of companies are working on vaccines. But, you know, uh, do no harm is something that we have always to remember. In other words, we can go very fast, but we need to make sure that we don't inadvertently harm. And therefore, there is a process. We need to go through a phase one. We need to go through a phase two. We need eventually to go through a phase three. And how we do it and um, is something that is very important. But also, uh, we're, we're very impressed by how the regulators have opened their doors to us to have this ongoing dialogue as to how to proceed in the fastest way possible while ensuring that patients are safe because we don't want to harm. That's exceedingly important. Last but not least, the other buckets are uh, products that are currently in development. And uh, either they are developed for uh, COVID-19 or we will be repurposed for COVID-19. This will take a little bit longer because you have to go through uh, the development uh, process, but also through the approval, okay? It seems for the moment the first bucket, repurposing drugs that are approved, and the vaccines uh, seem to be more in the lead time-wise. But um, I don't think we need to, to fool ourselves. Um, this will take time. And unfortunately, uh, time is against us. And this is where uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the challenge is, because everyone involved um, in developing a vaccine or developing a new treatment. They're working 24-7 under exceedingly difficult conditions. But yet, you know, it's like baking a cake. You can have all the ingredients, but uh, by increasing the temperature, it doesn't help bake the right cake. It will help burn it. So 
we need time and frankly time is not our friend nowadays right well thanks for that francois i'm going to ask you a couple questions one pertains to what you were talking about earlier about leadership and um gherkin mentions um you mentioned that you know it's never good to lose your credibility, your personal credibility as a leader. But they ask, what does losing your personal credibility look like? Oh, it comes, it's, it's like ice cream. It comes in multiple different flavors, your choice. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways, the, the simplest ways to, to lose credibility, frankly, is to lie, uh, to say things that are not true uh, for good or wrong reasons. Uh, you lose credibility because you're dealing with smart people. Your employees are smart. Always remember that. And they detect when you're not truthful to them. Uh, you can lose your credibility by um, misstating uh, either hyper-optimism or hyper-pessimism. You lose your credibility by, by not leading by example. Okay, you say something and you do something entirely different. And this is why I think, I mean, one of the elements that I would encourage us to do is if you have corporate values, uh, this is the time to stick to them like 100% with no exception because um, our, our teams, our employees, our staff will look for this disconnect between uh, what we say and how we act. You can lose credibility by isolating yourself from your team. They don't see you. They don't hear from you. They don't know what you think. And I think the most important, at least in my book, is you lose credibility when you don't show who you truly are. So as a leader, um, I'm fearful, I'm afraid, or I don't know. I would encourage you to say so, because they will, they will relate to you as a human being, as someone. But then you can add that we will figure it out. Okay we will find it, find the solution together. We'll continue building together. But the connection at the, at the personal level, human level, is so dramatically important. And um, frankly, any disconnect, uh, you lose your credibility if overnight you start treating your employees as, as if they're not your most valuable asset. Why? Because for the last three years, you've said, well, you are my most valuable asset. And then because we have a crisis, you turn around and start doing anything that could hurt your, uh, your employees. Um, layoffs. I mean, anything that you, you do that, that would generate some concerns. And uh, so there are multiple ways of losing credibility, unfortunately. And the only way not to is to continue to be true to yourself, uh, true to the values that you've put in the organization. And as I said, probably five times already, I would say it six times, uh, just treat your employees as smart people who are here to help. Great, thank you, Francois. I'm still waiting for a few more questions, but here's a long detailed one, and I'm just going to read it out uh, so I don't fumble it here. This is from Patrick. Given your expertise and hearing the opening about live or die by data and the capital markets, what is your expectation where many biotech funding is tied to clinical outputs, outputs, which now will be inherently delayed, as you mentioned, due to global sites practically shutting down, how will companies survive? And then secondarily, do you expect that for the rare space and, onco and oncology, 
will the FDA consider allowing approvals even if target recruitment is not 100% met, but the clinical endpoint can be confirmed? That's a mouthful. <laughs> Uh, Patrick, man, uh, thank you for this question. Actually, two questions, uh, not easy ones, but uh, so, so very pertinent to what we're doing. Uh, so thanks, really, really great, great questions. Uh, listen, funding will be, will be a challenge, uh, no, no question. Okay, um, the capital markets are not open uh, or are open very, very selectively. Uh, so uh, most companies who uh, planned uh, to go public will have probably to think about it twice, I mean, given the current uh, valuations. So, um, and even companies that are uh, public and want to uh, raise a secondary offering or do, do a convert. Or, so I think it's, it's very difficult to answer your question in general. What I can say is, uh, there is still money out there, capitals are still there, but investments are being extremely selective. And, um, and frankly, the investors are uh, weathering the storm uh, in, in, uh, by limiting the risk, okay? So what we'll see is, frankly, valuations that uh, are very different from what management would expect. And frankly, from where they were uh, three or four or five months ago now. Um, and uh, we'll have to be very creative in terms of how we raise capital. So for companies, for example, that uh, could not consider a secondary offering, they, can, they have to look at other ways. So if they have a marketed product, maybe consider some royalty monetization if it applies to them or consider a convert if it applies to them. But uh, certainly we need to be very discerning and um, it's not easy. Now for private companies that are living from paycheck to paycheck or from tranche to tranche, this is very, it's, it's a different story. But tranches will be, uh, tranches will be uh, frankly renegotiated. Uh, tranches and investors as smart people will look at um, at opportunities, frankly, to maximize their investment. Um, now, let's go back to the FDA. The FDA issued guidance, uh, which is very good, uh, related to running trials in these, un um, in these unusual circumstances. What we've seen, though, it's interesting, is oncology trials are still going on, um, usually in the vast majority. Um, some of the rare disease um, trials are still going on when it's life-saving, uh, others are, uh, are deferred. Uh, what we've seen also, and I cannot answer the clinical endpoint, uh, if the clinical endpoint is confirmed, frankly, it is on a case-per-case -case basis, but I would really encourage you to look at and read very carefully the FDA guidance on, uh, on running clinical trials in those circumstances. And um, my, second my second recommendation, uh, because I've experienced it, uh, please reach out to them. Uh, I have tons of respect for our regulators who are working uh, day in, day out to help us out in very, very unusual circumstances for them professionally and, and personally. Um, and frankly, they are there. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing how they are able to manage uh, their work like everyone else remotely in a very effective, effective way. What I've seen companies do, and I really encourage, encourage you to do it, is reach out. 
and frankly asked these questions. And it seems that uh, there are uh, regulators seem very open at least to consider and discuss with you. So it's on a case-per-case -case basis, but uh, there is nothing to lose in reaching out um, and asking for a type A, B, or C, or just exchanging communication with the agencies. They seem to be very open to doing that. Okay, Francois, we have this question from Clark. You talked about managing internal stakeholders and building trust. What are your best tips to engage a broader audience like new prospects during this very unusual time? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting because even in our space, in the, in the biotech space, we're saying, are there opportunities that can be created or identified in those very unusual, uh, very unusual days? And, and the answer is yes. So uh, in engaging prospects, I think uh, they will be in general, uh, I would think, uh, surprised to hear from you in a good way. Uh, rather than hunkering down and not hearing from anyone, I think they could be receptive. Uh, I think they could be receptive also if your product, uh, however you define product, is frankly, uh, you can distinguish your product from the competition. And today, there are many additional ways of, uh, of differentiating yourself from the competition, whether it's availability or speed or price or quantities or, or, or you go down the list. So if you reach, uh, reach out to new prospects, I think it's the right thing to do, uh, but make sure that you, you, your product or your products uh, are differentiated and and you are in your communication with them mindful of the overall environment that we're in. Great. Thank you for that, Francois. Still uh, going to ask for a couple more questions. Uh, while we wait, Francois, uh, clearly, you know, reaching out to prospects in a thoughtful way makes sense. Reaching out to uh, other stakeholders is, is really important. Talk to us about the board communication, the board relationships. Those are so important these days, but they're also tricky. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, here again, I mean, that's, that's key. Uh, so here is what we're doing in the companies I'm involved with. Um, and more specifically in the company, actually all the companies, but more, uh, more specifically in the companies I'm chairman of. Uh, we're talking a lot. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm encouraging management to keep the communication open uh, with, uh, with the board. Um, we are all in the same boat and the uncertainties of management are the uncertainties of the everyone management and board has a family, has friends, acquaintances who are living difficult circumstances. So what I encourage our, uh, our leadership to do is to communicate, communicate, communicate with the board. And more importantly, uh, I don't want them to communicate already baked solution. I'd like them to communicate proposals, ideas that we can work on together. And this is more than ever the time where board and management have to work hand in hand in full transparency, 
and in full synchronicity, right? Uh, I was with one of my CEOs yesterday, a couple of days ago actually, and he was preparing a presentation for the board. And I said, don't, don't fine tune it too much. Just let's present ideas and open the dialogue with the board. Because uh, here again, I mean, uh, usually boards are made of very experienced people that might have been in similar situation. No one has been in a situation like this one specifically, but they can relate and correlate to situations that have been in before. And this is where you can pull in their experience to continue building this dialogue, continue building this value for the company. So more than ever, uh, please keep these channels of communication open with your boards. Forget about the quarterly meetings. Doesn't work nowadays. A quarter is, is a century. So forget about your quarterly meeting. I mean, keep them, but that's not what would make or break a company. What would make or break a company is the real-time communication uh, with the board, whether it's a bi-weekly call, whether it's a monthly exchange, whether it's an ad hoc. I just got a, a notice this morning, are you available for a board call this week at 8 p.m.? Usually you don't have board meetings at 8 p.m., right? But it's unusual times, and guess what? Everyone said, sure, I will be there by phone or video conference at 8 p.m., and we will be there. So everyone is, uh, is willing to pitch in, and, uh, and now is really the time more than ever to take advantage of the experience of our board members to help us uh, continue driving the company. Great. Thank you, Francois. And I think that that tip uh, is a great way to conclude this uh, conversation. But one, one question was just submitted, so let me just check it. How will the workplace be different post-COVID-19? Any thoughts or predictions? All right. Gurkhan, this is the crystal ball question. Uh, actually, the world will be different. Uh, and by extension, the workplace will be different. Um, I don't know when we will go back to shaking hands or giving someone a hug. I'm not sure. Uh, but we learned a lot. We learned that we can work differently. Uh, it's pretty amazing how can be achieved, how much can be achieved working remotely. Uh, something that, frankly, we did not think about as much. It was more the exception than the rule. Uh, it's pretty amazing how companies continue to run well, uh, when there is no one in the office, whatever the office. It's pretty amazing how much uh, intimacy we have now with our employees because we're on the video conference with them and their kid shows up or their spouse or the dog gets barking, you know. I mean, it created a certain intimacy that was completely inexistent in the past. I had to lock my, our dog in the basement here, not to have him contribute to this conversation. So it's, um, uh, the workplace will be very different and I think it will be different in a good way because um, all of us went through this crisis and in many ways we were survivors. So there is this uh, camaraderie of we've been there together and we prevailed. Um, and fortunately along the ways, uh, we might have lost uh, families, uh, family members, we might have lost friends, uh, colleagues, and we need to be mindful of this human aspect of things. I think uh, 
when I hear statistics, I, I always try to remind myself that these numbers are individuals. Um, so we always uh, will continue in the workplace to be cognizant that this crisis um, was painful for many of us at, at multiple different levels. Also painful because uh, maybe we had to go through a reduction in force. So some of our colleagues who are with us are no longer with us and they're unemployed because frankly, we cannot hire them back. So there is this duality of how we work. There is this other duality of uh, uh, where we work, obviously, but also this duality of uh, the people with whom we work um, and, and how the relationships uh, could be very different now. And I see this as an opportunity to create a, a new and different workplace. Uh, it might be the beginning of a new era as to how we interact professionally and personally. Could be a very good thing. That is a, um, a great way to end this uh, really informative and illuminating conversation, Francois. But as I've mentioned earlier, I've been uh, asking guests to bring a poem to close this out. So what would you like to submit? Um, I'd like to, um, to read a couple of paragraphs of a poem that has guided uh, a lot of what I've done in my life. Uh, but also um, it is so very applicable to the conversation we had today and, um, and uh, the, the choices uh, that uh, we as leaders have to make today in a very uncertain time. And it's a very well-known poem. I'm sure many of you have read it or studied it back in school. And it's called The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. So I'll read the first and last paragraph, and the first paragraph says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. I shall be telling this with a sigh, Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So that's the road not taken. And um, frankly, I encourage everyone of us in these difficult circumstances uh, to, to look at the road less traveled, because we are, uh, we have to make those difficult, difficult choices every day in uncertain times and with little data um, and a lot of uncertainties. And my only wish is everyone on your call, on the call today, and thank you, Jim, for uh, offering me this opportunity, will one way or another, uh, will walk down this road less traveled and will end up making a difference. Great, thank you so much, Francois. That was really excellent. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.